then I had to figure out what in the world am I going to do with my life? And I had to discover like what that is. And then, you know, I had to go do it. I had to go try things. I had to go, you know, get my reps in. And then, you know, I had to keep going when I wanted to quit. And that's how I got here. And that is what became the Athletes Transition Roadmap. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Tips from Chips podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Kopp. This week, we'll talk with Daryl Stinson. Daryl is a former CMU Chippewa football player, author, two-time TEDx speaker, and founder of Second Chance Athletes. All right, Daryl, welcome to the Tips from Chips podcast. How are you today? Living my best life. How are you? Good. That's always good to hear. <laughs> yeah, man, for sure. It's just, man, I'm in Metro Atlanta, so the weather's amazing down here. And, you know, I, that's one thing God sent me from was from being in that cold Michigan weather. So I miss my alma mater, my family, but I do not miss the weather. Yeah, same here. I'm out in San Diego, so it's always beautiful here. And, uh, beautiful. you know, today it's actually raining, which is pretty rare, um, but we need the rain out here. So it's kind of a, a blessing when it rains. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for joining us today. Um, We're going to kick this off just going all the way back to your playing days at Central. So you came to CMU in 2008 on a football scholarship, and then you played under Butch Jones and Dan Enos. So can you walk us through that recruiting process for someone who may not know what that's like? And how was it um, just kind of being recruited under one system? And then when uh, Coach Enos took over, changing systems? (laughs) Go for the throat. No, man. Uh, so being recruited by um, Butch, because it was actually Mark Elder. And at the time, uh, I was being looked at by several different schools. And I was still kind of um, deciding between if I was going to go play basketball or football. I liked basketball more, but people said because of my height, I, it was more abnormal for in a good way in football than it was in basketball. So 6'5 in basketball, I was like, below average and six, five and football is above average. So um, I actually chose CMU because they allowed me to play both. So, you know, there was bigger school offers and other places, but, but I liked CMU because they had a good football program and a pretty decent basketball program as well. So uh, that's why I chose them. But then I came in my freshman year and Butch was like, yeah, I think we can use this guy actually this year. (laughs) And so that that basketball thing we're kind of straight on that and so that's why I I never ended up playing I mean then I got hurt and all this stuff so uh, in terms of what's the difference between this well let me say one thing about the recruiting process it's different per person depends on your talent and your resources and your knowledge of the way that recruiting works so I actually had very little knowledge but I was really really good and so that that plays a role so if you're good I went to like one camp for football and I got discovered so I always say um, get in front of college scouts perform outperform everyone and your chances of getting a scholarship is much much better so that that would be like my little tip there and we can spend more time there later if you want uh because it's a it's a very complex industry in recruiting and um, i've learned some things even from being recruited and then after you know now that i work with athletes as well in terms to answer your second part of that question differences between coaching staffs it's just different philosophies you know they say all coaching changes uh kind of go through that period where it's like, man, you know, you're going to have to rebuild. It's going to take three years to rebuild is what a lot of organizational leadership will say. 
Um, I personally feel this doesn't mean it's like the gospel truth or anything, but I personally feel like it, we didn't need to go from being a winning team to a losing team, <laughs> <laughs> you know, especially considering we still had me on the team. <laughs> no, just kidding, man. But we still had, we really did. We still had a lot of great athletes, number one draft pick yep. um, and, and a ton of NFL, CFL, AFL guys. So um, I think that, uh they both coaches had their strengths and weaknesses uh butch was a much much better motivator he was more of um he was better in my opinion at working with the elite athletes on the team uh dan enos was a much better um thinker uh he probably if i from what i could tell he probably had better play calling uh, but he was not as good with the elite athletes. He tried to play fair and, you know, instead of favorites, which is kind of what you got to do sometimes. Yeah. And, and uh, he catered a little bit to the, the weaker parts of the team. And so the, the model didn't work as well um, for, cause we were used to the, the core group, the best players on the team was, was used to the old model. Sure. So yeah, that, that's, that's, that's my, my take on the differences no yeah that's uh that's fair I think that I was there during the same years as you so um it, it was fun from 2007 to 10 going to those games and seeing you guys just light up the scoreboard and definitely yeah. a transition there in 2011 and 12 but uh, yeah. you know it's everything's a learning process and I'm sure you gained something from learning those different leadership styles and um, just kind of different um, coaching techniques yeah I used to do a talk called um the championship mindset or something and i would say it was what i learned from going from from being a nine and three team to being a three and nine team yeah right and so i learned some things that was different about our culture as a losing team than it was as a winning team that i feel like any team can implement and really become a winning team because it was the biggest difference was the culture yeah yeah. And culture sure. is a combination of what you create and what you allow. So a lot of people think culture is just what my vision board says on the locker room, my statement, you know, the values that we post, but it's not, it's not just what you create. It's what you allow. So if you don't enforce your values, then it doesn't become culture. And that was kind of the biggest difference is we had values on the wall when Enos was there, but they weren't as enforced as uh, strategically and uh, intentionally. That's interesting. Yeah, it's always good to hear the inside, uh, the locker room talk kind of. Um, so uh, moving on. So you've been pretty transparent in your speaking engagements about your severe back injury that you had as a freshman, which changed the trajectory of your career and life and kind of propelled to what you're doing after college. But um, even though you battled to get back on the field, um, the NFL wasn't an option for you as you originally had in your plan. So can you talk us a little bit more about how you came to that realization where you decided that maybe you had to think about something else for your career? And how did you decide, you know, what you wanted to do? Yeah, I didn't. Um, everything I, I say, do as I say now, not as I did. So <laughs> I got hurt my freshman year trying to impress uh, Nick Ballore and all those guys yeah. with how much I could squat and rupture a disc in my back, which put me out towards the end of the season and had to have eventually because I, I, I didn't know the difference between being hurt and being injured. So I thought I was just hurt, but really I was injured. And I played on that all throughout the summer 
um, and I forget when I had my surgery, but it was getting closer to season time when my pain in my left leg was unbearable. By the time I went and got an MRI, I had to have emergency back surgery because my left leg was going to go paralyzed from all the nerve damage and the pinching of the nerve in the back and how long I had been running on it. <clears throat> so I had the surgery and that was really it. Coaches was like, you know, we'll honor your scholarship. You can get an education. Uh, the trainers was like, you know, there's no way you're coming back, you know, just focus on your education. And I was like, let me show you. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the first time where I started to think like, this is it for me, but I wouldn't even entertain the thought. I couldn't, I didn't, I, it made me depressed. It, there was no way I was giving up. Like it wasn't a matter of if I was going to the NFL, it was just a matter of when, like, you know, I'm not the guy that's not supposed to make it. It's supposed to be the guys who are like, I don't know if they'll make it or not. Not the, the guy who we know was good. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I could not, fathom that and i'll never forget the day after my surgery which i was supposed to be in a wheelchair for a couple of days and then um i couldn't walk over a mile for the first six months it was supposed to be my rehabilitation plan but because i had something to prove i remember getting on my little wheelchair holding my abs tight and walking into the team meeting room the day after because i was going to show everybody and i did right i ended up rehabilitating really really fast and i told the coaches just give me one shot uh they uh, allowed me to sign a liability waiver <laughs> so they wouldn't be liable for my injury or death on the field and literally put me out there and was like, all right, you say you're ready to go. Let's go. And um, I went against Eric Fisher. Never forget inside drill, which is like one of the toughest drills. And I held my own. You know, I didn't crush or dominate, but I held my own. And they were like, OK, all right. Like he's back, you know. And so, uh, you know, ended up earning a starting position, started for two years and and that it really started for a year and and survived as a starter for a year but i would say everyone knew i was hurt you know everyone they, they the joke was like they would call even coach plaz would call me broke, broke back and all this stuff and so all these moments game by game practice by practice where I, I keep having to go to the training room. I'm missing practices because I got had a back spasm. You know, my teammate during one of the off-season workouts had to carry me to the hospital room where I needed to get a steroid injection in my back just to be able to get mobility. Like all these things that I had to do just to continue to play were all warning signs that I needed to focus on something else, but I just wouldn't entertain the thought because in my mind, me entertaining the thought of another career was me entertaining the thought of failure and failure was not an option. And so I wouldn't do it. And it wasn't until going into my senior year that, you know, I was taking so many opioids uh, to numb the pain in my back that it was thinning my blood to the point where every time I made contact on the field, my nose would bleed. And you could even see, uh, you know, um, my junior season, you could see me going against uh, like we played Michigan State. Yeah. Uh, I, the first quarter, I looked like a superstar. Like I got a couple of hits on my, uh, Kirk cousins and was doing really well. And then the next thing is no, the next thing, you know, like I'm doing nothing. And they're like, what happened to the guy that was like, well, we got to watch out for him. Well, what happened is my nose started bleeding and it would not stop bleeding. Cause I had to take, I literally took, uh, uh, they, when I went to the, I had a back spasm one time and they gave me the steroid shot in my back. So I had mobility. And what they did was they gave me uh, pills, uh, a couple that were steroids. So it was the shot in uh, pill form. And they gave me just six until I was able to see a specialist. Wow. And I held on and I took one per game. <laughs> and so that's what happened is I took this and it was way too much. 
and started to run around and I had to put nose plugs in my nose so that the, the blood wouldn't quit. Uh, keep dripping and I had to keep getting out the game and I played the entire game with nose plugs in my nose Wow! like imagine that so that's the type of stuff and so eventually they just kicked me off the team and that's when I had to deal with like okay this is not even an option anymore I can barely stand up straight I clearly can't play anymore they kicked me off because my injury is too bad and now I got to think of something else and that's where you know my suicide attempts come in at Got it. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate the transparency. I know it must not be easy to talk about that. You've had quite a journey, but I think you provide so much inspiration for a lot of athletes who've had that same journey as you who got injured and their career trajectories changed. Um, so I, I just, um, I love, you know, seeing what you have done so far in your career and you have definitely a bright future, you know, working in the sports industry, even yeah. though you're not on the field. Yeah. Um, so uh, this kind of segues really well. So a couple of years after graduating, you started Second Chance Athletes. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about that organization and how did you find that passion to give back to athletes and help with their post sports yeah. careers? So I went to a psychiatric unit um, after surviving multiple suicide attempts. I had this life changing experience that gave me hope. And then I started to look into how do I rebuild my life after sports, graduated with my degree in PR, started working for the university in the communications department, CMU University, and um, really started to build this life that I loved. And I, I wouldn't trade for NFL contract. And I noticed that a lot of my peers were having that same experience. Either they had had a career and they were like still talking about football, like it was the best days of their life, or, you know, um, I, some people had short, you know, career stints in the NFL or whatever, and they were coming out and they were like having the same language, like my best, like it's all downhill from here. Yeah. And I was like, it doesn't have to be that way. And so it started with just conversations and things like that. And then uh, I started to realize like, man, there's a real need for uh, transition coaching. And I was like, how did I get to this place? And so I I sat down with a piece of white paper in my office and I said, well, first I had to go through acceptance. And then I had to actually bring myself to believe that there's a future that's brighter than my past. And then I had to figure out what in the world am I going to do with my life? And I had to discover like what that is. And then, you know, I had to go do it. I had to go try things. I had to go, you know, get my reps in. And then, you know, I had to keep going when I wanted to quit. And that's how I got here. And that is what became the athletes transition roadmap and kind of our official coaching process at Second Chance Athletes. And I actually started it as just like a blog information on 2017, just trying to get information out there. And then the more conversation I had, added a coaching component to it. And now it's become what it is today. That's super interesting. and something I love to see what you're doing and following your journey. So I guess uh, for coaches out there who may be listening or athletic directors at smaller programs that may not have, you know, huge budgets or resources, what kind of um, advice would you give them to help athletes with mental health and, you know, their career advancement after they're done playing? Um, maybe for those coaches that are just getting into it. Yeah. Make space during your season to bring in people like us to talk to your okay. team makes um, prioritize it in off season as well, build it into your culture, your programming. Um, even if you can't, uh, and that's one of the reasons why we switched our business model from for-profit to nonprofit is to be able to service those schools who don't have the budget to afford, you know, programming that we have to offer. And so it's something that, you know, don't say no for people reach out. And if we've got a generous donor who can cover the cost, which a lot of times we will, because people care about, 
this and they want our student athletes to be successful beyond the game and our professional athletes to not keep going bankrupt within three years after their career. And so, because it's just better, you know, it's, it helps the individual and it helps the economy. And so, you know, that's something that we can definitely offer to people, but that would be my advice is you have to number one, know it's an issue, which I feel like a lot of coaches do, but they just have so much on their plate that they don't have time to really address it. Right. And so the same way a coach can't be a great academic advisor, a coach can't really talk deeply about the mental health issues that someone's facing. Like they can't be coach and father and transition coach and academic advisor. So you just build a team around you. And that's what we want to be is a support system for the coaches. Sure. So can you talk a little bit more about your business? Like how many athletes are you um, mentoring or advising? Like how big is that profile of what you're doing? Yeah. And so we, last time I crunched the numbers, we had serviced uh, 1,023 athletes wow. and we had like a reach of 10,000, right. Through like co-partnership ventures that we've done and things like that. Um, you know, you do a workshop and you get a whole football team there. That's a hundred plus guys. Yeah. So, you know, that was our current like reach. Right. And our email list is like, I don't know, six, 7,000 strong. And wow. so, um, yeah, that's, that's like where we're at now. That's like nowhere near where we want to be. You know, we have a lot of things we are planning to do in the future because we, uh, we want to completely eradicate after sports depression. And so the only way for that to happen is for there to be massive change. And for people who are in these silos saying that they help with transition or actually in the trenches helping with transition, and there's the distinction, that, that we team together and we realize that the need is bigger than the supply. And so there's no competition. The more we join forces and team up and bring each other's expertise, the better. And so that's where we play a really huge role where I see us going in the next, you know, really year or two is really being that solution hub for people. And we already do some of it. We just don't do, do it too officially, like uh, to be that solution hub. So we really want to be like your, your client or case manager as you walk through the different transition steps and work with specialists on your nutrition, um, on, you know, if you have an addiction, if you are connected to a counselor, we're kind of the people that are holding you accountable to make sure that you are healing well and building the life that you love. That makes sense. And that's so important. I, I remember I, I read a, a story from one of your teammates that I was uh, his mentor and tutor when we were at Central. And, um, you know, he shared his journey on Facebook recently, which I had no idea about his you know journey with depression after he finished at Central and uh, also a suicide attempt. And um, it was uh, pretty brave of him to share that for other people going through that um, struggle. But I just, you know, love what you're doing. I'm glad you're trying to make this as big as possible. So people that, you know, need these resources can reach out and get help. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, for sure. So amid everything that was 2020, you published a book. So I have it right here. <laughs> I got my copy on, uh, on Friday and um, my wife is actually nine months pregnant right now. So it's going in my hospital bag for when I'm at the hospital. But <laughs> can you... Uh, Tell us a little bit about the book. I haven't read it yet. And for maybe listeners who also haven't yeah. read it, um, who should be reading it? Give us a, a sneak peek inside of what's inside it. Yeah. It, every athlete on the face of the planet needs to read the book. Okay. If you are a person who is in any type of transition, whether it's your military and you're trying to you know, reacclimate to being a citizen, whether you're um, just got divorced and you're trying to figure out who you are without that title. I was told when I did, uh, I was doing some fundraising 
uh, to shift our business into the nonprofit about two years ago. And I was doing it at an FCA breakfast and a former Chick-fil-A executive who's been working at Chick-fil-A for over 20 years. Is that 20 years? I don't know. It was a long time. He's been at Chick-fil-A for a long time. and He's got a lot of money. He came up to me. He was retired. And he said, man, I need that book. Like, like I need it. And so, cause he was in the season of trying to figure out who he was without his title of, you know, uh, whatever his executive role was at Chick-fil-A. And so anyone who's in the season of transition and any athlete would be my answer to that. The book uh, is real simple. It starts with my story. I literally start with this scene where I'm in the psychiatric unit. It's very vivid imagery. And then I go into the framework of our athletes transition roadmap and I weave in my story all throughout that, but it, it's very practical as well. There's uh, questions at the end of each chapter for you to apply to your life and really get some results yourself. And then the last chapter uh, is kind of just like a, a big poetic ending and call to join the ranks and solve the issue. And that's what the book is. And I, I just encourage anyone to pick it up. It's it's pretty cheap on Amazon, but leave a review. That would be helpful. Um, Cause I don't ask for that enough, but that helps to get more visibility. Sure. Definitely will. Um, I look forward to reading it. And I think that's important for anyone too outside of sports, because I think that's one of the things that the pandemic really shone a light on is so many people tie what they do to their career. And, you know, that's the first question you ask when you meet people a lot, a lot of times, like, what is your name? What do you do for a living? And yeah. I think this pandemic really has opened the door that people are taking up new hobbies and uh, new activities to really like, you know, you're more than just what you you know, do at work. So I think that's yes. important. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Don't agree with you, man. Yeah. So uh, a big topic right now in both sports um, uh, in, in college sports, particularly is personal branding and the name image and likeness rule that was uh, recently passed. So I got to say, you've done a great job of your personal branding on your social media pages and your Ted talks and your book that we just mentioned. So how did you get started with that? And for athletes, maybe at central right now, what would you tell them to kind of start building their personal brand? Jeez. Um, well, don't break any rules. <laughs> don't, you know, you abide by the rules while they're there. Um, yeah. Because fair or not fair, they're there. Um, sure. So don't break the law. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying not to get sued. Uh and, and so I'll answer it more from a personal perspective. I will tell athletes this, recognize you have a brand, whether you're getting paid for it or not. Your brand is who you are. It's every, it's everything you represent. It's how people feel when they're around you. Um, what people see online is just the online representation of that. And okay. so I would just say any interaction that you have with someone is you showing them your brand. If you've ever been to Disney World, the website does not compare to it in real person. Yeah. The website is good. They have values. You can see some of their culture creating magical moments. But when you're there and they create the magical moments, that's when you buy into the brand. It's the same thing with an athlete. You can have nice little t-shirt and logo and all this cool stuff, whatever, sneaker line, like whatever you have that represents your brand. But when people meet you, are you a nice person? Do you look them in the eye? Like, do you care? Do you give back? Like, are you present with people? that is what they remember. And that is a represent, representation of your brand. So everywhere you go, you are communicating your brand and who you are. So keep that in mind. Make smart choices. <laughs> uh, that that would be my biggest advice to them. How I've been able to do it is, oh God, um, 
lots of trial and error, lots of mistakes. Um, if you scroll down far enough, you see at some point I hired a coach <laughs> because I had no clue what I was doing. Um, I knew marketing. I didn't know social media well. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, I knew how, how, to, and, and I didn't know personal branding really well either and how to communicate that. Uh, and so I, I hired a coach and several coaches since then that really helped me know what to post, what hashtags to use, what imagery to use, what, what pictures to show to communicate the things that I wanted to say. So that type of thing. And, um, you know, it just took off from there. And, you know, the TEDx talk uh, was just has gotten a lot of traction because I think a lot of people are dealing with rejection <laughs> and it's about rejection. And it's something we all can relate to um, being rejected, whether that's on a sales call, whether that's from a relationship, whether that's from, um, you know, an upbringing situation that you had, like we've all encountered rejection. And it's oftentimes this nasty thing that we don't want to deal with. When my, my idea we're spreading on TEDx was that it's actually a necessary part of our development and could be the greatest thing to help us push us towards success. So uh, it's, it's free. I don't get any money for you watching it, but go ahead and take a look at it. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty good conversation. Yeah, it definitely is. I will, um, I will um, stamp my approval on that. Uh, it's a great TED talk. I love how you talk about turning rejection into, you know, positive things and, yeah. and really, you know, spinning it on its head of, you know, how, how can we make the best out of this? Absolutely. So, um, we like to finish every episode with the same question here. So I think your career has been one of the most unique that we featured on this podcast so far, kind of being more in the entrepreneurial side of sports business. Um, so what advice would you give to someone that's looking to maybe start their own business in the sports industry, maybe not doing what you're doing, but doing something different? Yeah, so I live my life upon my highest purpose and how I make money or the different streams of revenue that I have coming out of my highest purpose is up to me, right? So yep. some of that may be I get paid through a job. It may be I get paid through speaking or coaching or writing, whatever that is. It's all uh, streams out of my highest purpose. So I would say, figure out what that is. I've got a process in the third chapter of my book that walks you through it. I also have a course that's available and it walks you through. I'll give you a couple of things to think about. Um, <laughs> if you could only do one thing for the rest of your life, what would you do, right? Here's another question that now people don't think about. If you could get a thousand people to join efforts around one initiative, what would that initiative be? There's 23 different questions <laughs> that I walk people through based upon five years of research that I did to get to your highest purpose. That's my number one advice is don't just get something because it pays well and leaves you empty. Get something that's going to fulfill you. Get something that where you're not dreading Monday. You're actually looking forward to Monday. Find that highest purpose and think outside of the box. Even if you work a job, you still got all this time outside of when you work like and you still can leverage your money in a way to accomplish an ultimate mission that you want to accomplish in life. So think outside the box. Don't get stuck into a rut and live your highest purpose. That's great advice. I saw a pie chart the other day that said, you know, uh, what people think is fulfillment and it's like pay and salary split 50-50 even. And it said what we're trying to, you know, do is show that there's so many more things that go into that and work-life balance and you know, your hobbies and activities outside of work. And, you know, I, I think, you know, you really hit it home that you got to do something you're passionate about and something that is your highest purpose. And, and that will bring a lot of fulfillment and joy to your life. And I think that's, um, I, I love that messaging and, and that's a great advice. 
Absolutely. And I'm glad you said that because you just gave me the last piece of confirmation that I need. So I have a pod, I have really two podcasts. I got my second chance live show and then right. I got my when I said yes podcast. But I, I want to bring it underneath this one brand that's just me and it's called Purpose Made Profitable. Okay. And I've been and I've been so I've been like resisting pulling the trigger. And now you just push me over the edge, man. Thank you. Because that's the conversation I see. It's like a lot of people think that it's like you're either gonna make a bunch of money or you're gonna be fulfilled. And I'm like, why don't you make a bunch of money and be fulfilled? <laughs> so yeah. your purpose can be made profitable. And what I learned, a lot of people, when you start talking about purpose, they don't oftentimes think it can be profitable. They think their their ultimate mission and the generous part of them in life is always some charity that they donate to. And they don't realize that it's a, a way that they can actually take their skill set and connect it to their mission in life and build a dream life. And I just, you know, a lot of it's entrepreneurship for me, but I've even had some situations where people work a job, right? Because not everybody's called to be an entrepreneur and they still are living out their purpose, right? And yeah. so I we, we, I could do a whole thing on it. I'm obviously watching the <laughs> podcast. So thank you for that last pushing me over the edge. That's what I need to go. I'm excited now. No, for sure. I look forward to listening to it. Well, thank you so much, Daryl. Appreciate your time today. And Love to see all the good work you're doing in the world. We need more of that. Um, so thank just you. thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me, man. And thank you for this podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you felt inspired from Daryl's journey, pick up a copy of his new book, Who Am I After Sports on Amazon and listen to his TEDx talk on overcoming rejection on YouTube. And before you continue on with your day, please give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at Tips from Chips. Let us know who you'd like to hear from on a future episode, and we'll catch you next week.